0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Psalms, part one. Well, now we come to the book of Psalms. This is the longest book in your Bible and in many ways the easiest. It's the easiest to find. If you take your Bible and just open it in the middle, there you are in the Psalms. You don't have to sneak a little glance at the index to find the Psalms. It's the easiest to use as well. It's the one that requires least explanation or least translation into our culture and into our terms. That's amazing when you consider the age of these songs. They were written over a period of a thousand years, but that's at least two thousand five hundred years ago and yet they speak to us as if they were written yesterday. Other parts of the Old Testament we have to retranslate into terms of the New Covenant, but the Psalms they can go straight through and they were obviously used in the New Testament in their church services. It is of course the Hebrew hymn book and they don't call it Psalms, uh, that word means twang and refers to the stringed instruments that were used, the twanging. And uh, there's a lot of debate about the word selah which comes into the Psalms. Somebody told me it was what David said when a harp string broke, but I'm sure that's, that's not true. But it, it, it is a musical term and I'll give you some meanings for it later. But apart from a few musical terms like this, we really don't need any help to understand the Psalms, but you're going to get it anyway. I'm going to introduce you to this wonderful book. They call it, the Jews call it praises, praises which is probably a much better name for it. And considering that the word Jew means praise, it's a shortened form of Judah which means praise. So the very name Jew means someone who praises or it should do. Well now here we have 150 poems set to music, they can be said or they can be sung or there's a third way of using them. Do you know what the third way is? They can be shouted and some of them were told to shout them. I don't know if you've ever tried shouting a psalm but if you can imagine the thousands of the people of Israel coming up to Jerusalem, filling the temple and the surrounding hills, the Mount of Olives and shouting together a psalm the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Can you imagine that, ringing around the Judean hills? So we can say them or sing them or shout them, but in England we're not too keen on shouting. They can be used in private or in public and they divide into two kinds of psalm that way. Some are what I call I-me psalms and some are we-our psalms. And incidentally, once again, the majority of things we sing together should be we, our songs. We should sing the I, my songs at home, but when we come together it should be our Father. In fact, Jesus actually said when you pray in private, shut the door of your bedroom and say, our Father, give us this day. In other words, even when you're praying on your own, you're praying as part of God's people and you can pray for them as well because they have the needs you have. So really, all worship, all prayer is corporate you're praying as part of a body all the time. But there are some psalms that are very personal, I, me, and of course David wrote most of those personal psalms. They cover almost everything you could possibly want to say to God. And later we shall look at three particular kinds of psalms, what I call please psalms, thank you psalms and sorry psalms. And those three words we constantly need to say to God, please, thank you, Sorry. Well now these psalms are not for priests. There's almost a complete absence of altars and priests and vestments and incense from these psalms. These psalms are for the people to say. They are folk religion. They're for ordinary folk like you and me to use. And they express what I call heart religion and heart religion is concerned with your feelings as well as your thoughts and uh, these psalms cover the whole gamut of human emotions. There is here deep grief. One of the little phrases that moves me deeply is, put my tears into your bottle, O Lord. I wonder if you realise what that means. When a death occurred in those days, they didn't send flowers or wreaths to the funeral to express their sympathy. They had little glass bottles about four inches high and they would hold it under their eye and weep tears into the bottle and send the bottle of tears as an expression of sympathy to the bereaved relatives. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist says, put my tears in your bottle, Lord. And you have great joy, you have frustration, you have anger. Some of the anger psalms are a bit of a problem to people, they think Christians shouldn't sing them. Well we're going to look at those psalms, they're called imprecatory psalms by the scholars. These are psalms that cry out for revenge and there are some terribly bloodthirsty psalms. Happy shall he be who takes your babies and dashes their brains against the rock. Now should Christians use a psalm like that? Well we shall have to look at some of the problems that the psalms have raised, that's the biggest one, but there are others. Martin Luther said in the Psalms, we look into the heart of every saint. Calvin said much the same thing, but he said we look into a mirror and see our own heart. Or as one person said, every Psalm seems to have my name and address on it. It's the most human part of the Old Testament, the nearest to us. We can identify very readily with the Psalms if we use them. Not surprisingly, it's therefore the best-known part of the Old Testament and the most loved part and that alone is evidenced by the widespread knowledge and use of Psalm 23. It's even sung at football matches and yet that psalm is probably the, the most misunderstood and the most abused psalm of all and we'll tell you why later. Luther said the psalms are the Bible in miniature, the Bible within the Bible and it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament and the most quoted verse in the New Testament is the first verse of Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, not all the Psalms are in the book of Psalms and I'm sure if you know your Bible you'll know that there were other Psalms written by other people. I wrote down at least 11 others that I know, one, is by Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15. There's another by Deborah in Judges 5, another by Hannah in 1 Samuel. Do you notice how many of these psalms are by women? Women tend to like poetry better than men. It's something to do with the other hemisphere in the brain, something to do with the intuitive side and the instinctive side. But uh, It usually takes men a conscious effort to appreciate poetry, but uh, women instinctively respond to it with their hearts. Job wrote three. Isaiah wrote one. Hezekiah wrote one. He was a king. Jeremiah. Jonah. Jonah used the Psalms when he prayed. You do remember when we studied Jonah that Jonah was dead inside the whale, not alive. The whale swallowed a corpse and Jonah said he prayed from Sheol. From the world of departed spirits, of disembodied spirits, from the land whose bars have closed upon me forever. And he quotes five different psalms in that prayer. And in answer to that prayer from the dead, Jesus reunited his body and spirit when the whale spewed up his body, and he became a perfect analogy for Jesus' resurrection. The miracle of Jonah was not survival, but resurrection. That's why Jesus said, as Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, I will be in the heart of the earth. I see some of you haven't yet studied me on Jonah. Anyway, Habakkuk also, and we shall study Habakkuk a little later. But most of the psalms that were ever written are here collected for devotional use, not in one book but in five books and that is noted in our English Bibles. And you probably notice that Book One and Book Two and Book Three and Book Five are actu- four and five are actually labelled in the Book of Psalms. So they had in fact five hymn books, and they are put together under what we call Psalms. What a variety there are! A variety in length. The shortest is only about three verses. That's 117. Then you get to 119, and. <laughs> uh, friend of mine when he got into a bit of a sticky jam, actually was trying to heal someone and he died. So he told everybody to start reading Psalm 119 <laughs> while he prayed for the brother again <laughs> and uh, that would keep them occupied for the next 20 minutes while he got himself out of the fix. Actually the man did then recover, but uh, Psalm 119 is a good way of occupying people for a long time, just tell them to read it. The breadth of them, they range from individual needs to universal needs and the depth from highest joy to deepest grief. There are psalms here for the downcast. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And that refrain keeps coming in, in Psalm 42 and 43. They're all in poetry, in Hebrew poetry, and therefore they are best read aloud and not for analysis. Preachers love to analyse the psalms. It doesn't really help. It's good to meditate on them, but to analyse them and pull them to pieces, it really destroys the beauty of them. You need to read the whole psalm through and then meditate on it. Let it sink in, if necessary, repeat it. Now then, the five books I've listed, these psalms in each book there, it's interesting that they all end with what we call a doxology. Each book finishes with giving glory to God. Doxology simply means glory to God. And you find at the end of book 1, in Psalm 41, a doxology, another one in 72, another one in 89 and 106, and the Psalm 150 is just one huge doxology to round the five books off. So each book finishes with praise. That's saying something, whatever you feel like, whatever your mood or your feelings, always finish by giving glory to God. A little moral in there. The size of the books varies because of the different size of the Psalms, but you notice that the first book is, and the last book are the biggest with over 40, then 30, 16, and 16. But it's probably the length of the scroll determined each uh, book, as we call it. There's an interesting pattern in the use of the divine names in these five books. Elohim is not a name, it's just the word God though it's an interesting word in itself, it's a plural word. The word for a single God is El, which is like Allah, Allah, El, that means one God. A word for two Gods, Eloha, Eloha is two Gods. The word for three Gods is Elohim and that's the word that's used all through the Old Testament, the word for three Gods and yet this plural word is always given singular verbs all the way through. Isn't that interesting? Three and one. The first statement in the Bible is, in the beginning, God's created the heaven and the earth, and the word created is singular, but the word God is triple. So you've got the Trinity in the first sentence of the Bible and all the way through, but it's one of the things the Jewish mind hasn't been able to see yet. There's a veil there and they simply regard the plural word for God like the Queen saying we or Margaret Thatcher saying we are a grandmother. That's that's how they explain it, that it's royalty, that it's the royal we. But it's more than the royal we, God is three in one. You realise that if God was only one that he could never be love? You could never say God is love if there's only one God, you see? But then we don't believe there are three gods, we believe there's one God in three persons and therefore we can say God is love, because you can't be loved by yourself. So that's Elohim and that's used through the Psalms, but the name of God, Yahweh. And uh, we have somebody from Israel here who told me yesterday that uh, another way of looking at Yahweh is it's made up of three words that mean past, present and future. It is a participle of the verb to be. It's really, I suppose, being would translate it being, the God who was and is and is to come. But I like always, the God always. Now, that's the word for God that is mostly used in Book 1. See, 272 times Yahweh, only 15 times Elohim. When you come to Book 2, there's a switch, and now it's Elohim and not Yahweh. And book 3, similarly, three times as many Elohim as Yahweh, but when you come to book 4 and 5, a complete switch back again and you get 339 Yahweh to only 7 Elohim. Now this varies of course with a number of things, the nature of the Psalms and uh, the writers of the Psalms. King David uh, is mostly in 1 and 2 and some in 5, for example but there's something else. Elohim communicates to us what we call the transcendence of God. He is far removed, he is other than us, he's different from us, he's the most high God, whereas to know his name brings a sense of what we call the imminence of God, the intimacy we have, the the personal relationship we can have. Do you follow me? And we need to keep both in balance. We need both to remember that God is transcendent and imminent. He's different and far and yet he's near and intimate. If you only think of one and not the other, you get out of balance and some people become too intimate with God and forget that he's God and other people get too far away from God and, and just believe in God and don't use a name. Uh, same thing happens in a sense with, with our Lord. Uh, Some people only say Christ which is more distant than saying Jesus. Jesus is his name, that's the name by which we have an intimate relationship. And if people find it easier to say Christ than Jesus, then they need to be asking a question about the relationship, you follow me? And we need to use both the titles that a person deserves to have and the intimacy of addressing them by name, follow me? and the whole Psalms have a beautiful balance there, but they begin and end with the intimate name that he has revealed. The authors, well David wrote most of them and most of his are in book 1 and 2 and a few in book 5, but then we have the sons of Korah. Do you remember Korah? The man who was cursed by God, who rebelled against Moses, but his sons became choir members in the temple or the tabernacle, and then later the Temple of Solomon, and they wrote a number of songs. Most of them are in two, in fact all of them are in two and three, 42 to 49 are all the sons of Korah. Sons of Asaph, that was another choir in the Temple, and their psalms are all in Book 3, notably 73 to 83. Quite a lot are anonymous, but all the anonymous ones are in Book 4 and 5, and we don't know who wrote them. And Perhaps it helps us to realise that anonymous people can write songs which can become useful. Moses wrote one, and that's in book four, and I'm sure you know it. Oh God, our help in ages past. That's directly based on Psalm 90, and is the psalm (coughs) Moses wrote. And I cringe when it's sung on Remembrance Sunday. I really do cringe because it says, sufficient is thine arm alone and our defence is sure. Then if that's true, why on earth are we spending millions on (laughs) defence? But uh, there's an English tradition dating back from Cromwell, trust in God and keep your powder dry, (laughs) but there we are. Those are the authors. Now let's look in detail at how the Psalms came to be. Moses, I've told you, is the oldest Psalm, Psalm 90, that's the earliest, goes way back to Moses' day, by far the oldest. Um, David wrote more than any other, 73 are named and a number of others clearly come from him so that over half the songbook comes from David. When he died, he called himself a very interesting thing. He said, he thanked God that he had been Israel's sweet singer. Israel's sweet singer. I remember hearing a, about a wonderful testimony of someone who was converted and he, he was giving his testimony. He said, when I went home, he said, the whole world was singing. He said, uh, I crossed the little bridge over the stream in our village and the brook was singing to me and he said, the birds were singing and everything was singing. He said, I went home and I was singing all the way and I went into the house and, and there was my wife. and." Uh, I was singing and she was singing and he said she was actually using a sewing machine he said that was a singer too. He said the, the, the whole wide world was singing. And I remember meeting um, a surgeon in America, we were both on television together in the same programme, Dr Edie, and he'd been staying in a, in a hotel in America and he'd uh, been on the balcony of a rather cheap hotel about four stories up and he leaned on the railing of the balcony and it just gave way and he crashed down head first onto a concrete curb and it just split his head right open and he was just lying there a corpse and they took him away, dead, in an ambulance and put him in the mortuary and then two days later the Lord raised him from the dead and he came back to life and he shared this experience. Now there's uh, things being told in the Daily Mail just now of similar character, but uh, you need to judge each one very carefully and be discerning. But Dr. Reedy had an experience of heaven with the Lord and he found himself walking through a garden with the Lord and all he could hear was music. And he kept looking around, he said, for the orchestra and the choirs but he couldn't see them. And he thought, but they're so near. And then suddenly he realised that the flowers and the trees were singing. And he realised that there is music in the whole of creation. And he came back with that. Now of course since they've discovered scientifically apparently, I read recently a scientific report, that they've been able to record the music of trees. Somehow they've been able to tap into it. But the Bible's been saying for years, that the whole creation is full of song and the trees will sing to the Lord. We just don't hear most of the music in creation because we're not tuned to it. I have a lovely recording at home of angels singing. Most of the time we can't hear them singing. Thank God we can't or we'd never sing a note. They are just so beautiful that you just stop singing yourself. But uh, there's music all the way through the creation and the Psalms seem to bring this out. David was Israel's sweet singer and he has this sense from his background as a shepherd. He learned his singing out in the countryside. He just had his musical instrument and that's all he had day after day, sitting watching his sheep. That's where he learned to sing and it's he who felt that creation around him was singing with him and that there was just one glorious choir around him when he was all alone. Solomon, of course, wrote a thousand and five songs, we're told, in scripture, but only half a dozen of them are published what happened to the other 999? Well, I have a theory and some of you know my theory. Solomon was always held up before me as the wisest man in the Old Testament. Would you say that a man who had 700 mothers-in-law was a wise man? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines and my theory is that he wrote a song for each of them when he fell in love. But since only one was God's choice for him, there's only one of his songs published, one of his love songs. That's my theory and I'm standing by it until I meet him and ask him. But Solomon wrote a few of the Psalms and they're very beautiful, he should have stuck to them. One of them was a song that he sang when the temple was being built because David wasn't allowed to build a temple. He gathered the materials, bought the site but he couldn't build it because he was a man with blood on his hands. So Solomon, the man of peace, his name means peace, it's like Shalom, and Solomon built the temple. But uh, this reveals his heart. It was a magnificent building, but Solomon said, well he sang, except the Lord build a house, they labour in vain that build it. That's a wonderful thought for the man who built the most impressive building in Israel. Unless the Lord builds it, waste of time and money and then Korah, Asaph, Heman, a number of others. Now why did they write them? How did they come to be written? And the answer is they all grew out of real life and that's why they speak to real life. Each song was sparked off by a situation, by an experience and that's why they're so full of emotion and usually people who write poetry are sparked off by feelings in a particular situation. Now many of the Psalms actually have... Uh, a historical title and tell us what was happening when David wrote it. Fourteen of them actually relate to his life. You can read the whole of David's life out of the book of Psalms, but fourteen of them were actually told. For example, once he had to run away from his own son, Absalom, who seized the throne and David had to flee from his life, from his own son, and Psalm 3 was written as he ran. And when you read it, you can feel the humiliation of a father having to run away from his own boy. It's all there in Psalm 3. Psalm 7, it says he wrote that about a Benjamite called Cush. Psalm 18 was written when he was delivered from Saul and all his enemies. He was fleeing for his life, but when he was delivered from Saul and all his enemies, he wrote Psalm 18. Now he sinned twice, did David. Now I'm sure you all know about the first one, with Bathsheba, in which incidentally Satan had no part at all. That sin with Bathsheba was entirely David's own idea. We need to be careful what we attribute to Satan. Most of the sins we committed, Satan didn't even need to bother. He wasn't involved at all, so don't you blame him (laughs) unless he was directly involved. That whole business with Bathsheba, which actually was the point at which everything began to go downhill. That was the afternoon that was the beginning of the downfall of the entire nation. But Satan had nothing to do with that. David thought it all up on his own. But when Nathan the prophet came to him and threw a parable, through a myth, through a story, challenged David and said, you are the man, he wrote Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, make my heart clean. And above all he said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, please, and don't take my name out of your book of life. It's a most moving psalm, Psalm 51. But his second sin, Satan was involved. Later in life, after he'd won all his battles, Satan came and said, and how big a king are you now, David? How many troops have you now? Now he didn't need to have a census or conscription because his battles were won. It was purely for pride and it says Satan tempted him and said, how many have you got now? And David counted up and said, so many. And when he realised what a sin that was, he wrote Psalm 30. That's a very moving psalm. It says, as long as he didn't confess his sin, he wasted away and he was worn out. But as soon as he confessed his sin, his health returned. There are many others. I love to visit the places where he wrote the psalms because you can understand them. On the shores of the Dead Sea there is nothing but salt and barren sand. But at one point, if you walk up a ravine, you come to a waterfall and a pool. It's a place called Ein Gedi. If ever you go to the Dead Sea, you must go and see it. You can see what the hills are like, absolute wilderness. But as you climb up into this ravine, suddenly there's a lovely pool. We actually swam in it and there's a waterfall. Anybody been to Angedi? Yes, you know the place. That is the very place. You can go into the very cave where David was hiding deep in the cave and Saul came in to relieve himself in the cave. Quite a story. And uh, David sneaked out and cut a bit of his skirt off. And uh, when Saul had finished and gone out, David came out into the open, held up and said, you left something behind. I could have killed you. And Saul had a very temporary change of heart and said, you're a better man than I am. I'd have killed you if I'd got you in a cave. And he left David on that occasion. But many of the uh, Psalms were written when he was in hiding in that ravine. And When you see the lovely fresh water. Uh, water plays a large part in David's psalms, you'll find. And I think he must have had uh, a swim under the waterfall because he talks about the billows going over him and uh, all sorts of little phrases come out. And then he often describes God as my rock and my fortress. Have you remember that? Well, what's that? that's Masada, just a bit further south. From Ein Gedi, you come to this triangular-shaped rock with cliffs on all sides where you remember the most startling final battle between the Jews and the Romans took place. And the Romans actually built a causeway up to the top. It took them a year and a half, but when they got up, all the Jews on top had committed suicide and cheated them. It's a great story, the Masada story. But that is the rock and fortress. If you could stay up there, nobody could touch you. And there's no doubt in my mind that whenever David talked about God, my rock, my fortress, it was Masada he was thinking of. And so you can go around these places and you can see the life situation where these psalms grew. They came out of experience. Now David is very honest in all his psalms. In modern phraseology, he lets it all hang out. And whatever he's really feeling, it's there. It has no difficulty. Now it's unusual in a man... Men find it terribly difficult to put their feelings into words. It's one of the reasons more women pray than men in an open time of prayer. Men are somehow handicapped. The language side of a woman's brain is much more developed. That's why most interpreters are women. You find it much easier to put your thoughts and feelings into words than we men. We have to learn to do it. So tomorrow morning I hope I'll hear as many men praying as women praying and giving testimony but we have that problem. But the Holy Spirit can overcome the problem and that's why it's so important to be baptised in the Spirit. The first thing he touches is your tongue and he sets you free to express yourself. I know men who've never cried since they were little boys, but when they get filled with the Holy Spirit they learn to weep again and he can release emotions and words again. And clearly these psalms are from a man filled with the Holy Spirit and David acknowledges that. Because it's unusual for a man to write poetry and to be so honest about his inner fears and his inner anxieties, but it's all here. Psalm 23 is, of course, written straight out of his daily life as a shepherd. And, and when you can write out of your daily experience, I think of a blind man called George Matheson. And George Matheson had one of these watches for the blind you know that has uh, Braille figures on that you can feel the time and he kept it in his waistcoat pocket and one day he was winding it up and feeling the time and he said this to God, my heart is weak and poor until it action find, it has no spring of action sure, it varies with the wind, it cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chain. Enslave it with your matchless love, and deathless it shall reign. Have you ever sung that hymn? That's the blind poet, and it all started because he was winding his watch up. And that's how most Psalms begin. Something in daily life is happening, and out comes. One of the Psalms, 29, clearly grew out of a violent thunderstorm. And David was caught out of doors in it, and here was this terrific thunderstorm. And every verse in the Psalm 29 talks about the voice of God, the voice of God, because that's exactly what it sounds like when God speaks. When he said, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, to his own son at his baptism, the people said it's thunder. So if you want to know what God's voice sounds like, a thunderstorm is a good picture. Now, then, But not all the Psalms are personal, some are national for the whole people of God. And there is a big difference between psalms that grow out of a crisis and psalms that come out of normal, quiet living. A lot of the psalms come out of a crisis and the national psalms come out of a national crisis. I am old enough to remember that churches were packed in this country at the beginning of World War II. Suddenly everybody was crying out to God, especially at the time of Dunkirk. And it does seem that a miracle took place with the weather at Dunkirk that saved the British Expeditionary Force, but people cry in times of national crisis. That's why we sing, O oh God, our help in ages past, at national times of crisis. And so some of the psalms come out of national crisis, but many of the psalms come out of normal occasions like coronations. Psalm 2, David wrote for Solomon's coronation. And when you read it through, you, you can feel David's, David's desire for his son Solomon. And the fulfilment of God's promise to David, I will be a father to your son when he's king. And so in that psalm comes, today I have begotten you, you're now my son. Many of the psalms are to encourage us to live a life of personal piety. Psalm 119 is written to encourage you to read the Bible and in every verse of that psalm there's a synonym of Scripture either the law of the Lord or the commands of the Lord or the precepts of the Lord or the decrees of the Lord or the statutes of the Lord, but it's a psalm encouraging Bible study. Other psalms encourage you to pray. Psalm 92 encourages the observance of the Sabbath and says that it's not to be 11 o'clock in the morning, it's to be the whole day, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. That was the origin of a.m. and p.m. worship on a Sunday. That's largely disappeared. Now it's an hour and a half in the morning and the rest of the day is your own. But actually we're not under the Sabbath law now. That's part of the law of Moses. And for us, every day is the Lord's day. Then there are psalms about general conduct. Well, let's just finish this talk by saying there are groups of psalms. So let's look at some of the groupings and we'll finish with this. Psalm 22 to 24 form a very important group. Again, they're a sandwich, but the trouble is people like to lick the jam out of the sandwich and leave the bread. But in fact, these psalms belong together and I call them the cross, the crook and the crown. They present us with the Lord who is first of all Saviour, then Shepherd and then Sovereign. And Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 23, the Lord is my Shepherd. And What I want to say is until you've been to the cross and found the Lord as your Saviour, you have no right whatever to regard him as your Shepherd. Do you understand? That's why we shouldn't sing Psalm 23 as often as we do. We sing at the funerals of unbelievers at football matches and, and people who've never been through Psalm 22 think they can have Psalm 23. And those who know the Lord as shepherd must remember Psalm 24, who is the King of glory. Open up the gates. This is the, the Lord who's coming as our sovereign, as our King of kings and Lord of lords. And we only have Jesus as the good shepherd because he was first our Saviour and is our coming King. And if you try and just have the shepherd bit without the other two, then you are distorting God's words. Those psalms fit so beautifully together. Um, In a little book I produced called Loose Leaves from the Bible, I've translated those three psalms into modern English. Let me just read a little bit out of each. My God, my God, why? Why have you left me all alone, me of all people? Why do you seem so distant? too far away to help me or even to hear my groans. Oh my God, I shout in the daylight but there's no reply from you. I howl in the dark but no relief comes. It doesn't make sense because you are utterly good. Our ancestors trusted you to the hilt and when they did you got them out of trouble. They appealed to you and reached safety. When they relied on you they were never let down but I am treated more like a worm than a human being with no consideration from men and only contempt from the mob. Everyone looking at me makes fun of me. They put their tongues out, shrug their shoulders and jeer. He said the Lord would prove him right. See if he gets him out of this. If the Lord's so fond of him, let him set him free. If they only knew. Well, that whole psalm was clearly in Jesus' mind as he died. Because do you know what the last words in that psalm are? It is finished? Then Psalm 23, the only God who really exists, the God of the Jews, cares for me as an individual like a shepherd for his sheep so that I'll never lack anything I really need. He forces me to rest where there is abundant nourishment. Then he moves me on, making sure I have constant refreshment. He puts new life into me when I'm exhausted. He keeps me on the right track to maintain his good reputation. And even if I travel through a deep, dark ravine where danger lurks in the shadows, I'm not afraid of coming to any harm because you are right there beside me. With your cudgel to guard and your crook to guide, I feel quite safe. Psalm 24, fling wide the city gates open up the old citadel doors, his magnificent majesty is about to enter. Who is this marvellous monarch? The powerful God of the Jews, the undefeated God of Israel. Fling wide the city gates, open up those old citadel doors, his magnificent majesty is about to enter. Who is this marvellous monarch? The God who commands all the forces of the universe, That's who this marvellous monarch is. So be quiet for a while and think about him. Well, you can get the booklet if you're interested. But these psalms speak and those three psalms belong together and we shouldn't take Psalm 23 out of its context. Take all three. Well, we'll look at the other groups in the next talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.